So I'm really uh, pleased to be back here again. Uh, it's been a while, and I always really enjoy coming here. And uh, these people over here are a wonderful um, cheering section for us. Uh, come back, it works. <laughs> it's really true. <laughs> it's true for us too. So I, uh, it was a wonderful way to end the meditation. So tonight is the first of this series of talks about the three marks of existence. And uh, because I got my uh, uh, reply back into Shiloh first, I got to have my first choice, which was to start it and give the overview of these three marks. So the three marks of existence are considered to be self-evident truths. Whether you consider yourself a Buddhist, or a Christian, or a Jew, or a Muslim, or a Sufi, or whatever, you know, humanist, um, the idea being that these are three truths that everyone can agree upon. And they are the truths of the nature of suffering, the truth of suffering, first noble truth, right? the truth of impermanence, and the truth of emptiness. The first two, pretty easy to explain to somebody who has had you know, no knowledge of Buddhism. Third one, because of the choice of translation of the word emptiness, which, by the way, is an upgrade from the original translation of the void. <laughs> In the early Buddhist text, it's called the void. That really leaves you kind of going, whoa. So emptiness is a step up, but even that is um, a little tricky until you just start speaking in non-Buddhist terms, and so we'll get there. But um, I wanted to share something with you, though, right up front, that was uh, written by Tanisaru Bhikkhu, which <clears throat> explains why these three are important to understand. You know, okay, so we're, we're starting this whole series, but what's the point? What is it that this, you know, as, as Christy said, this is the way of the deathless? Why? You know, what, what is this great thing that we're going to understand? Why is it so important for us to look at these three things? Okay. So Tani Sarobiku said, The Buddha had a simple test for measuring wisdom. You are wise, he said, to the extent that you can... Get yourself to do things you don't like doing, but know will result in happiness. And to the extent that you refrain from things you like doing, but know will result in pain and harm. He derived this standard for wisdom from his insight into the radical importance of intentional action in shaping our experience of happiness and sorrow, pleasure and pain. Given that our actions are so important and yet so frequently misguided, our wisdom has to be tactical and strategic in fostering actions that are truly beneficial. It has to outwit our short-sighted preferences in order to yield a happiness that lasts. Oh, isn't that the trouble? Things that we really like, we really want them, right now. And we often do not think about the future because we're so happy with right now, 
that we don't think of consequences. And we also don't think about the fact that what might be giving us pleasure might be actually causing a great deal of harm. Or that things that don't give us so much pleasure might actually do a great deal of benefit. The fact is, mostly we want to do what we want to do and we don't want to do what we don't want to do. And that is where suffering comes in. So we all know the Four Noble Truths. The truth of suffering, or actually I prefer the uh, uh, translation of dissatisfaction. Suffering sounds very big. Dissatisfaction, the water is too cold, the water is too hot. Pretty simple stuff. The second noble truth is the causes of suffering. Greed or thirsting desire, hatred or aversion, and ignorance or sometimes we call it delusion. So let us start with truth number one. So a self-evident truth, the truth of suffering Well, I don't think you have to look very far. Maybe right now in your life, there's no real suffering going on. But what I have found is, as I've gotten older, my group of acquaintances, friends, and loved ones has grown larger. And right now, on the home altar zendo, where my group meets on Saturdays, there are more little cards with people's names on them than there have ever been. On the left-hand side are the cards for people who need some extra attention and energy for well-being. They're either sick or they're struggling or they have a family member who's struggling. On the right-hand side are those who have died. Well, first there's this one really big one that is all the people of Japan. Oh, yeah, it didn't happen that long ago, you know? (laughs) And it's already out of our consciousness. All the people in Somalia. All the people all around the world. There's so many wars going on, we can't even keep track of them all. And then there are all the individual people that we know who have died. And as we get older, like, I'm always sorry to talk to my mother sometimes because every time I I call her, she says, oh... Remember so-and-so? She died this week. Every week, one of my mother's friends has died. And this is what happens as we get older. It happens all the time, but it seems to happen more as we get older. People get sick, and then they die. This is the natural order of things, but that doesn't mean we have to like it. So, this, this truth of dissatisfaction is in the simplest of things. As I said, my tea is too hot, my tea is too cold. I was meeting with a group of teachers of small groups like mine on Friday, and someone, you know, we were going around for a check-in, and someone said, so, can, can you talk for a few seconds because my, my mouth is full? And the other guy said, well, I'll talk about the weather. It's too hot or it's too cold, it's too wet or it's too dry. I sort of like my practice. I thought, it's true. The way we talk about the weather is how we feel about ourselves. It's never quite right. (laughs) You know, 
we exist as humans in these very narrow boundaries of what's comfortable. Anything out of our comfort zone, we're not real happy with. So the reason that I prefer the word dissatisfaction is that suffering seems like it's got to be a very big thing. Suffering means you have cancer or that your mother is dying. So I don't know if I shared this with you before, but one time I was doing the Thich Nhat Hanh orange meditation with a bunch of sixth graders. And I started by talking about this very thing. And I said, so I think it's, it's pretty self-evident that everybody has you know, some suffering in their life, right? I mean, is there anybody here who hasn't suffered? And of course, it's, it's as if you planted it, right? One boy raises his hand. He said, really? You, you've never suffered? Well, now his friends are kind of, oh, no. And so then now he's really got to maintain his position. No, no. I said, wow, you've never cried? Your parents have never been mad at you? No. <laughs> well, you can't call the kid a liar, so okay, fine. I just, so I just, wow, that is really great. You know, you have no idea how fortunate you are. But for the rest of us... <laughs> so we went on to do this orange meditation, and I don't know how many of you are familiar with this, but it's a wonderful thing to do with kids, and it works with adults too. Everybody gets their own little orange, usually one of those little small ones, the cuties. And the first thing you do is you just have them feel the orange and really you know, mindfully feel all those little bumps and begin to smell it. You know, the great thing about oranges, they're very fragrant. And then you ask them to start opening it, but to notice as they're opening how it feels because there's this um, liquid from the orange, that just even just opening up and peeling it gets on your hands. And then, oh, this wonderful orange fragrance fills the room. But you make them do everything very slowly. Finally, you get it all open. And then you ask them to take one small section and put it in their mouth. But don't chew. Well, this is unheard of. Everybody, you know... Immediately when they put an orange section in their mouth, they bite down, right? So you're asking them not to do that. What happens? Saliva immediately fills your mouth. And the urge to swallow is almost unbearable. Ha. If that isn't suffering, I don't know what is. <laughs> so you make them keep it in their mouth for a while. You keep saying, now, now don't bite down. Just, just hold it in your mouth. And you can just see their faces are... Oh, it's agony. So finally then you say, all right, now you may bite down, but don't swallow. Now, oh, the juice is just filling their mouth and their little taste buds are exploding and the mind is saying, swallow, swallow, swallow. But you're saying, don't. Finally you say, now you may swallow the juice, but not the orange. Well, that's a little relief. And then you can see there happy faces, and I said, now continue chewing the orange, but don't swallow anymore. So they're chewing along, and then finally, you know, after a while, you keep chewing, keep chewing. You can see they're beginning to get a little distressed again. (laughs) And finally you say, okay, you can swallow again, but don't swallow the orange. (laughs) 
So you make them keep doing this for quite a long time, and then finally when you are sure, because you're doing it with them, that there is not one ounce of juice left in that pulp, that there is nothing but pulp left in your mouth, finally, finally you say, all right, now you may swallow it all. Again, I could not have choreographed this. The very boy who said he had never suffered burst out, that was disgusting! (laughs) And I said, and that is suffering. (laughs) This is the thing. If you're really paying attention, all day long stuff like this is happening moment after moment of wanting or not wanting and feeling anxiety arise around it, despair, hope, whatever it is, all day long. So, you know, the Buddha was no stupid. He got this one right right away. This one didn't take very long to figure out. Suffering is part of our life. And joy is too. Joy eventually goes away, and the good news is suffering often does too, but not always. Sometimes if we're very ill and we're on our way through our dying process, there's very, very little end of suffering there, at least in the body. So the way I describe suffering, or dukkha, is the distance between what we want, and what actually is. Sometimes it's very close. What we want is what we've got. Sometimes it's just a little far apart. A lot of times it's this far apart. The distance between those two points is the measure of our suffering. So remember we have our causes of suffering. Thirsting, desire, okay, sometimes called greed. That's, I want what I want when I want it, right now. And then there is aversion or hatred. Hatred is kind of a funny word because we think, oh, I don't hate anybody. So it's better to think of it as aversion, which is, I don't want what I don't want when I don't want it. It's the pushing away, which is why hatred is sometimes made the translation. Because the purpose of anger and hatred is to push away. And then there's this ignorance or delusion, sometimes translated one, sometimes the other. And so this is the fundamental belief in separation. That's what the delusion is. The delusion is this belief that there's the entire universe and then this one little extra special thing, me. We all think like this. You know, a lot of times we joke, oh, this person, it's always about her. Well, actually, when you really start paying attention, what you find is it actually pretty much always is about me. One way to be sure of this, to check yourself out, next time you're in your car and someone cuts you off in a very dangerous way, be honest with yourself 
Who are you concerned for first? The person who cut you off? Oh, you poor person. <laughs> Probably not. <laughs> how, how could you endanger my life that way? <laughs> it happens to me fairly frequently because I live on the top of one of these hills over here, up a windy road, that people are a little sloppy sometimes coming around the blind curves. And it just happened about six weeks ago. Someone was this far over the double yellow line. There was no place for me to go except downhill. And fortunately, because they had a BMW, which is why they were over the line in the first place, because they were speeding, they were able to yank the car back over and probably missed me by this much. Do you think I felt sorry for the BMW person? (laughs) I'm afraid to say that even Buddhist teachers do not. I'm not even sure I felt sorry for myself. My heart was beating so fast. But that's the delusion. And it's a very powerful one. And it's a very natural one. Because here we are in these bodies. And these bodies appear to be separate from all the other bodies. So it's a delusion that is um, compounded by our rather feeble senses. We think we can rely on our eyes, our ears, our nose, our tongue, our body, our mouth. Well, my dog, who is out in the car right now, can smell a thousand times better than I can. And the eagle can see a thousand times better than I can. And an electron microscope can see even more. And if we could see the world through the eyes of the electron microscope, what we would see is electrons widely spaced up in here and then getting darker and more together in here. But all along these edges, it would be totally fuzzy. We are related to everything, but our senses aren't good enough to see it. So it looks like we're all very self-contained and don't need anybody. That is the fundamental delusion. So everyone suffers, even the kid who says he doesn't. Okay. And there are consequences from suffering. So I have always really appreciated these um, five recollections of Thich Nhat Hanh says, the first is, um, I am of the nature to grow old. There is no way to escape growing old. I am of the nature to have ill health. There is no way to escape having ill health. I am of the nature to die. There is no way to escape death. All that is dear to me and everyone I love are of the nature to change. There is no way to escape being separated from them. My actions are my only true belongings. I cannot escape the consequences of my actions. My actions are the ground upon which I stand. 
So although everyone suffers, it is also the case that when we understand the nature of this suffering and the causes of this suffering, then we understand also the consequences of our actions. Our actions are the only thing that we can actually do something about. Which leads us back to what Tanisaro Bhikkhu says. Given that our actions are so important and yet so frequently misguided, our wisdom has to be tactical and strategic to fostering actions that are truly beneficial. Beneficial, who's the first person who benefits? This one here. But it doesn't stop there. That's the beauty. When this one benefits, everything and everyone benefits. This was the Buddha's great understanding on the morning of his enlightenment when he stood up and said, all beings are enlightened at this moment with me. That he, he understood that he could not experience his Buddhahood if everything wasn't experiencing Buddhahood. So, you have to understand these three things are all related and interconnected. So as I said, the great thing about suffering is that it changes. Joy changes too. And this is all because of truth number two, impermanence. So when we're in meditation, what we notice if we sit for long enough, is that things change. We can watch a thought arise and we can see it move and change. We can watch an emotion arise. We can see it getting stronger or weaker. Impermanence is fairly obvious because I see many of you are over the age of 50, which means you've had some opportunity to watch yourself getting older. And all those things that you thought you were going to do when you were 20 have now sort of faded into the background of what you are actually doing and the life that you are actually leading as opposed to the one you believed you would be leading 30 years ago or 30 years from now. Everything changes. And this is good news. (laughs) It means that everything, our pain, our joy, our suffering, our hope, our anger, our despair, it all has the opportunity to change. So when you are in the midst of your deepest, darkest, most difficult moment, if you just wait, that will change too. Everything has to move. And when one thing moves, everything has to move. You can't, you can't move a star in the sky and expect everything else to stay exactly where it was. It doesn't work that way. So if we wait long enough, it is kind of like the weather. It will change. 
It may not change the way we want it to, but it will change. That we can count on. So things change, and we have to adjust. That's actually where suffering comes back into place. Right? Because sometimes the change and the adjustment is difficult. And again, there we go with our aversion. But I don't want this change. I want something else to happen. The distance. What I want and what actually is. Okay. So, actually, there's a, there's a quote I have here by John Lilly where he says, our only security is our ability to change. And then later there's another uh, quote, which, uh, where is it? Somehow it got taken off. But the other one is that basically um, when you find that you cannot change a situation, you may finally have to change yourself. And that is the core of our practice, actually. Because one of the difficulties for us, one of the causes of suffering for each of us, is our desire to want to control our world, to control our friends, our family, our children, ourselves. Oh, I wish I could be more whatever it is. Or I wish I was less. The desire to control is because we want to feel safe. We think that if we just keep a tight lid on everything and keep all our ducks in order, we'll be happy. But life doesn't seem to work that way. And so, meditation says, hmm, situations are usually beyond your control. You might be able to influence them, but you might not be able to actually change them. So then there's really only one place you can go, and that's here. You can change your mind. Now, that sounds like a very easy thing, and it sounds very facile coming out of my mouth. But I will never forget. I have this image emblazoned on my mind. I had been on a wonderful vacation in Hawaii. It was a very rainy time here. This was in 2006. 2005, 2006. And when my husband and I got home, we discovered that half of our house had flooded on the inside. Water had come down the driveway, which is very steep, and three different drains had all gotten plugged up. What are the chances of that? It was like the perfect storm. And the water all was pooling around a a sliding glass door that led into one part of the house. And eventually, it was this high, and it just came in. So here we were all happy and tan and relaxed from our wonderful Hawaiian vacation. And we opened the front door and I thought, what is that smell? Well, the problem is it had been sitting there for a week. And the carpeting had gotten moldy and the mold had gotten into the walls. So half the house was wet and muddy and moldy. And it happened to be the half where we would sit in meditation, so there were grass tatami mats in there. 
which by the time I pulled them up, because they were the real thing, were sprouting mushrooms from the bottom. <laughs> well, it began to rain again that very night. You know, we, we got home rather late in the, in the day. I think we came in at five or six o'clock and then it began to pour again. And what we, then that was when we realized that the final drain down by these doors had gotten blocked for some reason. We didn't know why. So there we are. Oh, the power went out too at this point. <laughs> when we first got home, we had power, and then the power went out. So now my husband and I have on our yellow rain slickers, our knee-high boots, And we're wading in water this deep outside the house because we don't want it to come into the other part of the house. And he's out there with the plunger, madly plunging at this one place where is the last drain that we have all our hopes on. And we're just not making a dent. And the rain is just pouring. And I'm holding the flashlight. And I remember thinking, I am so upset. (laughs) My entire vacation is gone in a in a flash, (laughs) emptied in an instant, as it says in the sutra. And I am am really getting angry. (laughs) And I kept saying to myself, you have to breathe. You have to remember just, you know, it's okay. You'll get through this. No, I'm really angry. (laughs) The the, The teacher me was arguing with the really upset me, and we were going back and forth, and meanwhile I'm holding my flashlight. It turned out that the reason we were never able to get that drain free was that it was a three-inch drain down which my neighbor's dog had dropped a two-inch tennis ball. So the room flooded again, but fortunately it did not flood the rest of the house. The fact is, you wait long enough, the rain will stop. (laughs) The water level will go down. You'll figure out what's happening, and a year later you will have a new house again after a lot of remodeling. But the idea still, who's suffering here? The rain isn't suffering. The house is not suffering. You know, I am suffering. Why? Because I am completely unwilling to accept the fact that I'm standing outside in the cold, in the wet, in the dark, trying to avert disaster to my house, which is not so unusual. It's okay. We can be kind to ourselves too. But impermanence says, even this will not last. Impermanence says that there will be an earthquake sometime in the near future. But how funny that there should be an earthquake on the East Coast first. Place where everybody, when they find out you're from California, goes, oh, I wouldn't live there for all the tea in China because of the earthquakes. <laughs> you can't escape it. You cannot control your world. Things happen. And then, as Tanisara Bhikkhu says, then you have the opportunity to act for a beneficial outcome. So you can either stomp around in the water, being really mad, and making yourself angry, and making your husband angry, and just having a temper tantrum, basically. I didn't quite get that bad. Almost, but not quite. Or you can decide, oh well, Welcome home. You have to change your mind. And if you watch it long enough, you find for yourself that your mind, in fact, does change. And it changes 
pretty quickly actually, when we're watching it arising and falling away. How many of you have had this experience? You're sitting in meditation. All of a sudden, you have an itch right here. And it is so, oh, I just, I just, oh, I want an itch, I want an itch, I want to scratch it. And then your mind goes off and has a thought. And by the time you realize you're thinking and you come back and you suddenly realize that you forgot all about the itch. Where did it go? It was so powerful there, you just, you just wanted to scratch, but then your mind went off. The mind is a crazy thing. You keep your eye on it long enough and you begin to see. There's even a bumper sticker, actually, that says, don't believe everything you think. It's really true. I mean, watch your mind sometimes and, and stuff will come up and you think, where did that come from? And where is it going? Thank goodness for impermanence. Because <laughs> some of that stuff that's arising, you just think, I can't believe I just thought that. That's incredibly petty, or stupid, or unkind, or how could I, oh, how could I think such a thing? Well, we do. This is what the brain does. We don't have to be too upset about it, but we don't hold on to it either. And thank goodness for impermanence so that we don't have to hold on to it. So, understanding impermanence, though, leads us very directly into truth number three. And as I said, I think the first two you could talk to your great-grandmother about, and she would know what you were talking about. By the time you're the great-grandmother's age, you know all about suffering. And you know all about impermanence. Emptiness, though, this word, kind of makes us crazy. It is self-evident, but you have to speak of it in ways that other people can understand. So when we use the word empty, we have to think, well, okay, is this glass empty? No, it's got water in it. If I drank all the water up, would it be empty? Not really. It would look empty. But actually, there would still be air in it. So when we're talking about empty, we have to ask empty of what? Empty of water, empty of air, empty of lemonade, I don't know, empty of beer, something. So when we're saying the word emptiness, we have to say empty of what? And what we mean is everything is empty. And what is it empty of? A permanent, abiding nature. So if you go back to truth number two, I feel like I'm Vanna White, box number one, number two, number three. Okay, so let's go back to box number two, impermanence. And you start asking yourself in your meditation, who is it that is meditating? Well, it's me. Okay, who is me? Well, me is Misha. Well, who is that? And the more you try to pin it down, the more you realize, actually, it's unpinnable. You, turns out, 
are much more complicated than you think. And you are also much bigger than you think. And going back to box number two, guess what? You're changing all the time. That makes it pretty hard to put your finger on it. Because this morning, maybe you woke up kind of grumpy. Is that you? No, because by the time you'd had your cup of tea or your cup of coffee, you were feeling much better. (laughs) Well, is that you? Pretty hard to say what this I is. This I, this thing I call myself, is changing all the time. You know, maybe I can make some general statements. You know, it's like my little biography. Well, I'm a wife. I'm a monk. I'm a librarian. But what does that actually tell you? Nothing. So I had an experience this summer. A very dear friend, someone I've known for over 20 years, ended up having a stroke at 52 while driving at night. She ran a red light and got hit. Fortunately, by that time, she was going so slow and the person swerved that the only thing that got damaged were the cars, but she still had a stroke. And I was hugely surprised because this is a person who is a body worker. Does her, her work is you know, Chinese medicine and acupuncture. She takes care of her body. She takes care of my body. She takes care of everybody's body. But then I find out that she has been allowing her high blood pressure to go untreated for four years. This is somebody I know really well, or I thought I did. She just got moved home Labor Day weekend. I spent the whole summer helping her, getting her home ready, keeping her finances together, and it's a miraculous recovery, really. I mean, she's, she's the poster child for stroke victim. But still, all I could think of all summer long was, wow, I thought I knew this person really well. It's a close friend. How could she have hidden high blood pressure from me for four years? And why would she want to? And at that moment, I had a huge revelation. (laughs) Oh, we don't actually know each other. None of us do. Even the people that you love the most in your life, you don't really completely know. And you never will. Because of emptiness. I used to think I was suffering from some disease called chameleonitis because I would be a different person depending on who I was with. Yes, I'd be more or less Misha, but I would find myself sort of shaping myself to this person or shaping myself in a different way to that person. I'm different with my mother than I am with my friends at school. But it finally, finally occurred to me when I had been practicing for years, actually, we're all doing this. 
we change depending on circumstances and conditions. Who we're with, what we're doing. How many yous are there? Thousands, millions. What this actually says to me is, we cannot judge each other at all. I don't know why any of you are doing what any of you are doing. And you can tell me why you're doing it. And it may be partly the truth, and it may be just what you're telling me at that moment. The fact is, we're very complicated. We are not permanent, abiding natures, and neither is anything else. Everything is always in flux and in activity and dynamic. And how wonderful for us that we are. It means that we can easily then forgive each other for being crazy. Because we're all crazy in our own way. But we have to remember that. I am no easier for you to understand than you are for me to understand. And so that lets me let go of all my judgment. I see crazy stuff and I think, I have no idea why this is happening. We're always making up stories about why it's happening. But now I'm becoming much more careful to even say, by the way, this is just my story of what I think is happening. You you can tell me what's really happening and maybe that'll even be true. But the interesting corollary is, in, in the case of my friend, what I also realized was, once I got over the shock and the upset of realizing she'd almost killed herself and possibly somebody else, you know what? I loved her just as much. All of our craziness, all of our actions, does not get in the way of that. But it's important to remember how fluid we all are. Now, there's a great quote from uh, George Bernard Shaw. He says, um, The only man I know who behaves sensibly is my tailor. He takes my measurements anew each time he sees me. The rest go on with their old measurements and expect me to fit them. But isn't that what we're always doing? We meet each other. We wake up. I wake up in bed, you know, and I get up often and go sit, but sometimes I don't. And, you know, we have these little rituals, and I say good morning, and I assume that my husband is the same person I went to sleep with the night before. But this is simply not the case. For one thing, he's eight hours older. (laughs) You may laugh, but it makes a difference. One thing is he's probably eight hours less tired than he was the night before. So maybe he's in a different mood this morning. Maybe I'm in a different mood. I notice after I sit on the mornings, you know, Monday nights, I lecture in my group. So sometimes on Tuesday mornings, I admit it, I don't get up and sit. But I always regret it later because I can tell the difference even in myself. The fact is, we have to take each other's measurements anew every single moment that we meet each other. 
There are several of you here that I recognize from before. And there are parts of you that I'm sure are very similar, but you are not the same people any more than I am. Geez, after the summer I have had, between taking care of my friend and it happened to be a summer where I gave Dharma transmission to a new teacher, which is a 21-day ceremony. Most complicated thing I will ever have to do in my life, and I hope not to have to do it too soon again. But an amazing, intimate, wonderful ceremony. But a very full summer. And I have come out the other end kind of exhausted, but very happy, because everything came out okay. My friend is home again, trying to resume her life. My student, who is now a teacher, is in New York leading a sangha so beautifully. It could not have come out that way. Maybe my friend with the stroke would never have recovered. There's plenty of people, my uncle being one of them, who's never completely recovered from his stroke. This is our life. The truth of emptiness, though, allows us the room to move and change and grow. If you were a solid, fixed being, if the daffodil was a solid, fixed being, nothing could change. Last night, it was so wonderful. We were sitting in the what's called the play space at my school. It's a very small gym. And there's a glass roof. And the rain was coming down. And it was the first real rain of the year, the season. It was lovely listening to the rain. And I thought, you know, by February, I'm not going to be so excited about hearing the rain. But right now, it's wonderful because I haven't heard rain in months By February, I'm going to be wanting to sit in the sun. (laughs) So, there's this really famous koan, not koan, Zen story, between the first patriarch that, that brought the practice of Buddhism from India to China, named Bodhidharma. Bodhidharma is the one, you see these, uh, these Zen scrolls with this, this man's face with the eyes bulging out. This is because he cut off his eyelids, supposedly, so that he would not fall asleep during meditation. I do not recommend this to you. I only explain it. All right, so. But he has a student. He sits and he faces a wall for nine years in a cave. This is the story. And this young man comes along, Taiso Eka, and he begs and pleads with the Buddha, with, with Bodhidharma to take him on as a student, and Bodhidharma basically ignores him at first and tells him he's got a lousy practice and he'll never you know, be good enough. And, and so then the story goes that Taiso Eka, standing overnight in a snowstorm, is still there in the morning, and he cuts off his arm and presents it as his mark of uh, devotion. Now, you've got to let some of this stuff go because I think it's just meant to urge you to better practice, but don't cut off any body parts. It's really not. Your teacher really doesn't need them. Okay, but there's another thing that Taiso Eka says to Bodhidharma, which I love, and which is just about this. Taiso Eka is standing in the snow. He cuts off his arm, he presents it, but then he says, My mind has no peace yet. I beg you, Master, pacify my mind. 
Bring your mind here, and I will pacify it for you. Ah, well, I have searched for my mind, and I, I cannot take hold of it. Ah, so now your mind is pacified. I have searched for my mind for 25 years and I have yet to be able to take hold of it. And why is that? Because there is no my mind to take hold of. And that is why Bodhidharma says, see, now I have pacified it. Because now you have actually found you cannot take hold of it. You can sit in meditation all you want. And you will not be able to take hold of your mind. But you will be able to experience mind with a capital M. It's the your part, the my part, that is getting in our way. So I will leave you with this one last piece. (laughs) This is a story, a true story of a Zen master and his student. This took place probably 50 years ago. And uh, the teacher is trying desperately to get the student to wake up. And he says, you know, I will take care of anything I can, but there are five things that I cannot do in your place. I can't wear clothes for you. I can't eat for you. I can't shit for you, I can't piss for you, and I can't carry your body around and live your life for you. You have to do that yourself, and that is why we've been given form in this world. We have a body. It causes us a lot of suffering. Same thing for mind. But... As the Buddha discovered during his sojourn when he left the palace and finally had his moment of great understanding, guess what? (laughs) You need a body. He almost killed his. He was on the edge when Sujata came up with that little bit of milk and he drank it. And because of that bowl of milk, He had the strength then to sit under the bow tree and awaken. You need this body and this mind in order to have form in the world to experience your own Buddha mind. Unfortunately, the body will not last. But mind does. Not your mind, but mind. It is your actions. You are changing your, this mind that is going to lessen that distance so that you will not suffer so much. Even in the middle of your dying, you will be able to find peace and equanimity. Thank you very much. Thank you for listening. 
To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.